Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the real pleasure to talk with the author of Shall We Wake the President? Two Centuries of Disaster Management from the Oval Office. The author is Tevi Troy. Tevi Troy, who is a friend, is also the CEO of the American Health Policy Institute, as well as being a former deputy, deputy secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Tevi, how are you doing today? Thanks for having me, Heath. I know that one time I was on the other side of the microphone and interviewing you, so I'm glad we can flip it around. Yeah, this is both, you know, very much my pleasure, and for all of those those difficult questions you asked me, I can now return those to you with just as much uh, vigor. Uh, you are you not sending the softballs back. <laughs> right, right. You are not a first-time author, and and in looking at this book uh, that which we will talk about. It, it did strike me uh, that you were writing in lots of different ways. How did you get from your book on the intellectual influences on the presidency to this most recent book? It, it's a really good question. My first book was on intellectuals in the presidency. The second book was about different things that presidents have read or watched movies or TV called the, what Jefferson read, Ike watched and Obama tweeted. And given my experience in government when I was Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, as you said, but also a senior White House aide, I wanted to write a policy book in addition to just a straight-up history book. And a good friend of mine named Alan Rekshoff said, well, why don't you write about disasters, since you had a lot of experience with disasters in the Bush administration in terms of preparing for them and responding to them, not just 9-11 and Katrina, where I was working in the administration, but also we worked on a flu plan, an avian flu plan in preparation for a potential flu pandemic, and that flu plan was used by the Obama administration in 2009 when the swine flu outbreak happened. So I wanted to write a policy book that reflected my experiences in government and disaster policies. But then also I have this historical background, and I know a lot about the presidency, so I decided to marry presidential history and times presidents have dealt with disaster with the policy suggestions of what presidents should do in case of disaster based on these case studies of how pre- previously presidents have dealt with the situations. Yeah, and you know, let's let's start from the start. And let me also mention that your publisher, Lions Press, is is has published this book that has just come out very recently. And in starting from the the start uh, and from the perspective of the federal government, I wonder if you could define for us or talk a little bit about what a disaster is. Uh, what what qualifies in a definitional way from the perspective of the federal government? Yeah, that's a really good question because people always say, "Oh my gosh, that rollout was a disaster," or this, um, you know, this particular scandal is a disaster. But that's not what I'm talking about in this situation. What I'm talking about in this book are disasters with real ripple effects, things that have national implications. So, for example, if there is a big pileup on 95 and 10 people die, it's a tragedy, but it's not a disaster that would require presidential involvement. And so in the book, I try to look at eight different types of disasters, four man-made, four natural, and I look at how these things have happened in the past and what would happen if we encountered one of them in the future. So the types of disasters that I looked at are massive weather events, 
uh, bioterror or terror attacks. Unfortunately, we saw one recently in, in New York City. Um, economic collapse, uh, grid collapse. And I take all of these eight different types of scenarios and I look at what the presidents have done and I recommend what presidents should do going forward. Now, you describe in the book the, this balancing act that federal officials must strike between uh, under and overreacting to, to threats. And, and as you've already mentioned, you, you live through several of these situations. I wonder if you'd walk, walk us through how this works exactly. Um, you, maybe you can dr- just, just describe the process through which a, a disaster reaches the Oval Office and, and the president is, in fact, woken. Yeah. So th- th- there's a bit of a joke in the title, which I, I think, and I said in a recent political article, that the 3 a.m. phone call itself is a myth. There have been very few instances in history where a president was awakened and then took actionable steps that changed the direction of events. It really doesn't happen that often. It's usually a notification call in the middle of the night. The way that does work is that the National Security Council is the situation room. There are people there constantly monitoring what's going on in the world. And if a report comes in to that situation room in the White House about some kind of problematic situation, then they have the option to kick it up to the NSC, the National Security Council Executive Secretary, who then can ask the National Security Advisor or the Chief of Staff whether it is appropriate to wake the President and notify him. Now, I looked into this with some of my former colleagues in the Bush administration who had worked in those those specific roles that I mentioned, and they they said a couple of things. First of all, there's a high bar on determining whether to wake up the president. You don't just wake up the president for any old circumstance. But in addition to that, they said that if there was the kind of thing that was happening that the president really couldn't do anything about or change the situation or had to make an important decision about, they would be more apt to take whatever happened, write it up in the president's morning briefing, and notify him when he awakened, as opposed to waking him up in the middle of the night. Except to think you want a high-functioning president, you want a president who's ready to go when he, he wakes up, and waking a president up too often in the middle of the night is a disturbance that would, would reflect poorly or would lead poor, to a poorer performance in the future. So notifying the president upon wake-up at 6 o'clock really doesn't have that much sort of different in terms of impact, than letting than notifying him at three o'clock in the morning. Now, you divide the book, as you mentioned earlier, into acts of God and acts of man. Now, on a conceptual level, uh, is one of these harder for the federal government to address? Uh, you know, are there um, different processes involved in responding to a natural disaster like Hurricane Katrina compared to a man-made disaster like the Gulf oil spill of a couple of years ago? How similar are these? I think what we try to do in the federal government is to try and take processes that could apply to different scenarios. This is what we would call the all-hazards approach. So all-hazards approach is something that we look at specifically with respect to, let's say, a, a disease outbreak. Now, if there's a bioterror outbreak that causes anthrax in New York City, or if there's a massive Zika outbreak in the, the southern U.S. states, it doesn't really matter that one came from a terrorist and one came from a mosquito. Uh, these are both diseases, and we have a playbook for dealing with them. So I think conceptually it's not that different. The big difference, I would say, is that with the man-made ones, there's more of an intelligence component in terms of trying to prevent them, and there's more of a law enforcement component in terms of trying to punish the perpetrators after they take place. 
In the book, you compared what happened in West Virginia recently to what happened in Flint, Michigan. Uh, these both involved threats to clean drinking water, but they were different in some ways. What if you could describe a little bit about what these two water-related disasters had in common, and more importantly, what, what made them different? Well, obviously, there's a difference in that one was a chemical leak, which is what was happening in West Virginia, and the other was the long-term neglect of the, uh, the water system. Uh, and both are problematic, though, in terms of preventing the people, the American people in those areas, from having clean drinking water, having access to clean drinking water. One of the things I'm trying to get at in the book is that we in the United States have an expectation of plentiful food and available clean drinking water. Um, this is different from most of human history. For thousands of years, humans have struggled to find their next meal. But in the United States, we are what the historian David Potter called the people of plenty. And we're fortunate in that there's plentiful food available and there's, there's drinking water that is taken care of and, and made sanitary and drinkable and potable. Uh, obviously, there's a distribution of resource questions. So if you are impoverished and can't afford your next meal, you may not have access to that long enough some degree. You obviously have a food stamp program, and you can always find food. You don't have the same kind of shortages in the U.S. today or throughout most of our history that you had, for example, in the Soviet Union, throughout much of human history, or in Venezuela. That is, what if that assumption goes away? What if we have a drought, or more realistically, I think, some kind of poisoning of the water, whether it's by a, a, a natural event or man-made event or neglect or a leak that we saw? And what is the presidential responsibility? I think what we saw with Flint, Michigan, was a lot of wringing of hands, some laying of blame on both sides, and you know, uh, a lot of Democratic professionals uh, elected throughout the state of Michigan as a heavily Democratic state, but it happened on the a Republican governor's watch. So, but is it really in the president's purview to address this issue? In fact, one of the president's agencies, the EPA, seemed like it was uh, a little falling down on the job in terms of maintaining Flint's water supply at an appropriate time. So, uh, for the most part, I don't necessarily think that these two instances require a lot of presidential attention. Uh, FEMA did step in, for example, with the West Virginia situation and bring lots of water. That's appropriate. I applaud that, but you didn't really need the president to go appearance. There was noise in the campaign about who should visit, who should, who should visit, and they made a big deal about Michigan. Uh, this is the kind of thing where the situations I lay out are not necessarily at the presidential emergency response level, but these things became more widespread. It wasn't just one locality, but it was the next problem of drinking water. That is something that the president would have to be involved Now, uh, the country has long dealt with certain types of acts of God and certain types of man-made disasters, but in the book you talk about the, the newest category of threats, which are, include cyber attacks. Um, do the same set of protocols uh, uh, operate for those kinds of attacks as they do for the kinds that we're more accustomed um, to? Um, and are there any reasons to think there, that new strategies for disaster management are needed for these uh, virtual kinds of disasters? Oh, I absolutely think we need to think through new protocols. And it's pretty clear that we have not been thought through it. In the book, I talk about Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, who is worried about some kind of massive cyber attack on the U.S., and he asked staffers at the 
sense, what is our doctrine of response if we are hit with a massive cyber attack? And he said, not only could he not get a straight answer, but he pushed for it for over a year and never got a straight answer about what our doctrine of response is. And so one thing I find in the book is that I don't think that the diehard for lone hacker taking out the entire grid situation is a realistic scenario, but I do think that there are state actors, specifically Russia and China, that could do massive damage to our systems cybernetically, including harming our power grid, which would have huge impacts, uh, potential loss of life, uh, loss of economic activity, uh, grinding to the halt of, uh, of most activities that take place today, including our phone calls. does need to think about how to protect ourselves against these kinds of things, but also how to respond should we be faced with one of these kinds of attacks. Because if all the power went out in the United States 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, it would have very little impact on our daily lives. But if all the power were to go out in the United States right now, that would effectively send us back to the Stone Age for something we need now, um, you know, as as you talked about earlier, you, you lived and you worked through December 11th, 2001. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about wh- where you were on that date and, and maybe some of the things that you observed in the federal response and you know, how, how terrorism response fits into your book. We're, we're recording this just just a short while after uh, what what has happened in New York City and also in New Jersey has transpired. We don't we don't at this point know very much about it. But I wonder if you can just sort of take us back to that. And, you know, you offer this kind of very much of a firsthand account of this. Would you would you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So when September 11th happened, I was not yet in the White House or the Department of Health and Human Services, but I was in the federal government. I was a political appointee at the Department of Labor. And I remember the first plane hit. People thought, oh, maybe it was a mistake or a plane went off course. Um, and then, obviously, in the second one, that we realized this was a much bigger problem. And within minutes of the second, we were all evacuated out of the Department of Labor and of other federal buildings. And I remember just masses of people walking in various directions on the streets of Washington. I remember our cell phones did not work. It was very hard to communicate. This was before the widespread use of the BlackBerry. Only very, very senior officials had BlackBerrys at that point. And in fact, September 11th changed the Bush administration's policy towards which officials should BlackBerry. They invested more heavily in the technology afterwards and allowed people at lower levels than was previously allowed to have those kinds of um, instantaneous communication devices. So the entire federal government pretty much ground to a halt that day because everybody just left their buildings and, and really, really didn't know what to do. There are all kinds of stories about people who left the White House and found makeshift offices on uh, K Street or an office around town with friends without cell phones and without um, access to, to the White House system. Uh, but, but for the most part, it was a real wake-up call about how quickly the federal government could get the deal. And I know that subsequently in the administration, we worked on plans and drills for what happens if there's some kind of massive attack and where we would go. There is a place that can't talk about it, actually, because that. Mm-hmm. Security seriously, uh, but there's a place where federal officials would have to go to um, uh, to kind of reset up the system to make sure that everything is working in the federal officials are doing what they needed to do. Put a lot of thought into the sort of cost and continuity of government. Now, an issue that we we both have thought about a fair amount and and we've talked about before 
is preparing for the transition between presidents. I wonder if there are any particular aspects of that time period that warrant special care for disasters and 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 whether, you know, we're at a point where we're prepared for a disaster that might happen on on the day of the inauguration or the first day after the inauguration. Um, and maybe we can sort of wrap up by, by think just talking a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked about that, Ethan. I know you are a real expert in written stuff on the questions of transitions. And I think the U.S. is in its most vulnerable point in that transition period, not just in the November to January 20th period when President leaving and the new president coming in, but also in, in just the immediate aftermath, what happens in the, in the first few days, or even in the first few months, when swine flu hit in 2009, the Obama administration had not yet had a single person with the top 20 officials confirmed at HHS at the Department of Health and Human Services. And that was a real problem for dealing with the swine flu. Unfortunately, the career officials who were in charge did a very good job. They used that, that avian flu plan that we had prepared in the Bush administration. Uh, there was no kind of partisan pride of authorship or refusal to use uh, a plan from the previous administration. It, it was very, uh, it ended up being a pretty effective response. And in fact, fewer people died from flu that year, the year of the flight flu, than in the average flu year. So I, I was kind of proud that the, the plan was so effective. But uh, I think it is a very vulnerable time. I know that the Romney transition, of which I was a part, and didn't come to full fruition because he obviously lost, his, lost the election, but they were preparatory efforts. I uh, had something called the Black Swan Team. And the Black Swan Team was supposed to think through what happens if there's an unanticipated crisis and, and how to handle it. And I think that both transitions right now, but the federal government is funding the Clinton and the Trump transition as we speak. And I think both sides would do well to have some kind of last month. They are ready should some kind of crisis hit. And even if a crisis doesn't hit in that period, just the very act of thinking through those issues will make an administration better prepared for dealing with crisis. Because they go to fake every administration deals with crisis. You don't know what they're going to be, but you know they're going to hit. Yeah, the book again is Shall We Wake the President? Two Centuries of Disaster Management from the Oval Office. The book is published by Lions Press. The author, who you've been hearing from, is Tevi Troy. Tevi, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.